Filmmaker Commentary Episode 7. Welcome to Filmmaker Commentary, where we give you insights from our favorite filmmaking commentaries. These commentaries can be heard on your DVD and Blu-rays of your favorite movies. We'll show you how you can use these commentaries and apply them to improve your video production and filmmaking techniques. All of this here on Filmmaker Commentary. I'm your host, Reginald Titus Jr. Welcome to Filmmaker Commentary, Episode 7. We have special guest Casey G. Smith with us today, and we won't have any news segments today. We are going to dive right into the movie Alien. Let's dig right in. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Filmmaker Commentary. I'm here again with our special guest, Casey G. Smith. Welcome to the show, man. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me again, Reginald. It's always a pleasure. Yes, indeed. So, today we're going to be talking about Alien. Alien, for y'all that may or may not know, it was directed by Ridley Scott. It was released May 25th, 1979 in the United States with a budget. Um, online it says $11 million. It depends on who you ask. It say 8.6, 10, whatever. At the box office, they have it at $100 million to $200 million. VH sales and the rentals uh, were about $40 million. And so basically this movie is a cash cow and it's the reason why so many sequels and prequels are made for this franchise. Director, really Scott, this dude's 80 years old right now. <laughs> yes, which means he would have been closer to in his 40s when he actually shot this film, which it was shot in 78. And uh, he had a strong background coming from shooting commercials. And he had just finished his first film, The Duelist, when he was approached about Alien. Ridley, he's becoming one of my favorite directors, producers. I've kind of slept on him a little bit. You know, I've seen some of his um, some of his work, but he has a career that I look forward to having. Is like, you know, 80 years old, still sharp, still doing his thing and active. Because most recently, uh, the movie that's out right now is All the Move, All the Money in the World. That's the movie that he just recently uh, reshot, and he, of course, he had to reshoot Kevin Spacey's scenes in this movie. And the reshoots cost 10 million dollars. Yes, they did. Which is basically the budget of Alien. That's the atmosphere that that really is working in. But you're right, Reginald. When you look at the f- the filmography of Ridley Scott, you have everything from Alien to Thelma and Louise uh, to American Gangster. Yeah, that's one of his favorite ones. Right to to Gladiator, Blade Runner, obviously is is a, right. is a classic for him, and uh, Black Hawk Down uh, as well. Yeah, I was looking at his. I'm like, I didn't realize. I didn't realize Ridley. I'm sorry. I didn't realize. <laughs> I slept on him, too. I was just like, okay, now I'm actually going through his catalog. and like, okay, let me just revisit because he also gives a lot. And I like the fact that what allows him, I think, to produce so much is because he produces the films. And then also he's not necessarily writing the films. He's taking scripts that he likes, purchasing them, whatever, through his production company, and he's just shooting them. So it allows him to, to get to market quickly. Kind of like David Fincher, they can just knock films out. Versus if he was like a writer-director, then it'll take a lot longer. That's true. And he's, he's, so, he's so involved in that pre-production, though. I mean, we you know, we know even from, from Alien that he, he's an artist himself. And he will get in and roll up his sleeves and storyboard and get behind the camera, which we'll hear more about. That is, yeah, I like that about him. Um, growing up, uh, I knew about Alien, but I was really too young to appreciate it. I wasn't even born when it came out. Um, but I do remember a scene from the sequel in which they performed the knife trick. Uh, was it Aliens or was it part two, part three? Aliens. Mm-hmm. 
saw my mom and dad watching the scene, and once things got weird, I was out. You know, I was <laughs> pretty sensitive kid. I, you know, anything supernatural, scary, weird, I'm out. Uh, what about you growing up? What was your experience with Alien? So Alien literally came out the same year that I was born. I was born in 79 in the, in the month of December, but I didn't realize it. Uh, at the time when I was when I was younger, but I saw Aliens when I was maybe in anywhere between third, fourth, or fifth grade, somewhere around there. But I I also remember I remember buying one of the toys. I actually had an Alien Queen, like the toy of it, and you could you could press the back of the head. It was like a little air thing, and the, of course that extra mouth would. That's would extend gross. out that's gross uh, and it had you know the the clawed hands and it had a, a tail attachment because they couldn't just fit the tail on there so you'd have to take it and attach it on yourself and it, and you could press the side of the hip and it had a little whiplash action to <laughs> knock down the other figures but yeah they were you know aliens was such a uh, action movie that they they wanted to capitalize on some on some toys even though i think it was rated r Wow. Um, my my intro was to Aliens, and I didn't actually I didn't realize I, I hadn't seen I didn't see Alien the full movie until maybe about four years ago. I I rented it through uh, Netflix and was really blown away uh, by its methodical pacing and the kind of Jaws motif, where the kind of less less is more, and the kind of Hitchcockian style of if you can imagine the the horror then that makes it scarier i wonder why they uh is there a reason why the first one's alien the second one's aliens and or whatever did they talk about that at all well i didn't hear anything in in, in the current commentary but i think with uh with james cameron when 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 aliens was made because i i listened to part of that commentary it was it's been a, it's been a, a couple of years now but he had a specific reason and maybe it was something on the lines that I don't know. Sometimes putting a a, a number in, or before or after something sometimes just seems kind of silly. Maybe sometimes, and so mm-hmm. they wanted to maybe keep it grounded in a certain way. Yeah, I wonder if they were just capitalizing off the name because I know Robert Rodriguez later on did an, a follow up to Predator. You know, did Predators. So I don't know if it's like something had to do. I don't know if that's like a legal thing, a business thing to keep the franchise. I don't know. Uh, I think Rodriguez may have may have partially done that in a little bit of homage to mm-hmm. Aliens. Like, and I've been I've been scooping up a lot of '80s Blu-rays and DVDs. I've got I have Predator one and two on Blu-ray mm-hmm. with commentary. So I I need to go back through and and check that out. But I think I'm I might have heard him mention something like that. That mm-hmm. it might it might be a little bit of homage to what Cameron did. The commentary that I listened to it was the one with the cast and crew, um, and also with Ridley Scott. Which commentary did you check out? So first I checked out the the 1999 commentary with with just Ridley by himself. And and then I, I listened to the 2003 commentary that has Ridley and the cast and crew. So, yeah, I've been taking in a lot of alien knowledge. After watching it again, what, what did you think? I love this movie. Like, <laughs> real talk. Yeah. I love this movie. And it was really after I had watched it the first time all the way through and then then watched Aliens. Now, as an adult, like I have this just profound appreciation for it. And, I mean, I, I own this this blu-ray set uh the alien quadrilogy and it has six discs and it has more content than any other set that i own there are things on it i still haven't seen yet and um so yeah i love mining through it uh i love the alien lore i love i love prometheus i liked alien covenant you may not have that's on you not me uh and i, I need to scoop that up on blu-ray yeah two collector's edition what 
after watching like the first time i tried uh watching alien i was like it's moving too slow i'm like i'm it was late at night i'm like i can't do this mm-hmm. but watched it earlier today and actually was blown away this stands up i like the fact that they use sets you know having the sets that makes a big difference really is big on saying if you can do it physically then do it physically because you know certain certain things sure will look will look will look dated here and there but there are certain elements and certain effects in this film that hold up mm-hmm. uh and you know from the atmosphere that really creates to the use of, of of smoke and carbon dioxide everywhere to the miniatures man the miniatures that they used in the 80s i'm i'm very impressed with how some of them still hold up and if, right. if they hadn't told me oh that was a miniature model i i, I wouldn't i wouldn't have known it it looks big time blockbuster with the ship yeah just multiple aspects where it it holds up and i appreciated the suspense i know like these days everything is cut quickly but i like the fact that you hang out with these characters for a long period of time or whenever they're doing a close-up you're you get a chance to kind of hang out with the character and feel the suspense along with the character so i, I appreciate it the longer cut of it i i agree also reginald and, and that was one of the strategies of of really he took quite a bit of time with the casting and actually, you know, Sigourney Weaver was one of the last pieces to be to be added. But he felt that if you cast correctly and if you have really good actors, then that's that cuts down on at least 50 percent of the problems you'd have to deal with on set. And, and really was so focused on making this film look and feel so unique that he knew he had to have a great cast. And it, it really does pay off the spending time with these characters even though we don't know a whole lot about them we get a very you know a couple of their quirks but their acting just just comes through even in the the, the slightest of movements and and just looks and, and mm-hmm. facial expressions and like you said the the suspense lingering on certain moments and sometimes just cutting away and leaving something seemingly unresolved and just moving on and just letting your mind wonder like what's happening to that person you know i didn't realize how tall sigourney weaver was she's like 5'11 i go she's almost six foot tall She's been known for her height. She's almost like an Amazon. Thinking about marketing. I like the fact that uh, really Scott, he was thinking about marketing early on. He knew that the release was coming in May. And so when they began um, designing the posters and they came up with the logo, he wanted to use that logo alien in the titles. And he asked for it to be put in the title sequence. So I like that he's always thinking about marketing. And he, he had it to where he wanted to look like hieroglyphics. Mm-hmm. And throughout the movie and, and how it's designed, you will see certain things that resemble Egypt. Yes, that seems to be a, a, a motif. Even the logo for the, the, the organization with those, those, those wings, that mm-hmm. come out, you see it branded on, on multiple devices and computers. It definitely has an, an Egyptian uh, feel and influence to it. Be resourceful. Um, a lot of the corridors in the actual spacecraft, they were created by junk taken away from aircraft graveyards. They assembled it like a sculpture. They painted it and then joined them together by door architraves. They didn't really have enough money to build a lot of things from scratch, so they had to be resourceful when building the actual set. Definitely. There was a a, a lot of resourcefulness that, that took place and just little tricks that would be used. Um there was one scene when they're when they're heading towards the the derelict ship, where to to make the scale and scope look larger, they they put uh, two of Ridley, Ridley's kids and another production person's kids inside the suits as they're wow. moving towards it to to you know make the miniatures look bigger. 
uh, in terms of scope and scale. The ship itself was just one level. So mm-hmm. even scenes where it seems like Ridley or anybody is climbing up or out of the ladder, they literally would start off laying down <laughs> and then kind of just kind of snake their way up and pull themselves up and out. And that's kind of like maybe why you have kind of the extra base that comes out of the ground when you have a, a ladder. Somebody can kind of hide down there, curled up, and then you know, look like they were sending out of it. One thing I did notice was the the people had normal bodies. You know, that was just like my own observation as they're coming up through the, was it the cryogenic scene when they're waking up from hanging out for two years? Uh, people with the, they got the hair on the chest. They're just <laughs> these weird underwear that everybody's in. Um, I did notice like if it, if this movie, if they shot the same movie today, most of the actors and actresses will be probably working out to like, if their body's going to be seen, they want it to be sculpted in shape. The uh, aesthetics of uh, how people would and could appear uh, has definitely changed today. But one of the things that they were aiming for, even when, when, O'Bannon wrote the the script. One of the themes uh, when Ed O'Bannon came up with a, with with the Alien script, him and uh, what was his his writing partner's name? Uh, Shusett, uh, Ronald Shusett, is that kind of the thing was almost like truckers, like truckers in space. Uh, and, they definitely and, and, have that vibe. Yeah, and this cast and the crew of the ship, they are they're miners. You know, like they're that ship that they're on is for mining minerals in in ores they're blue collar workers in space and even within the ship politics there is even clearly a a hierarchy you know Mm -hmm. you hear parker complaining about pay and trying to like you know trying to get get more for for him uh and and his buddy and it's 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 so fascinating to to see that they they do look like regular people they they're they're sweaty they're they're dirty it's funny when Parker was asking, we're going to get the money. Then his friend is like trying to shush him. He's like, <laughs> like, no, when are we going to get paid? When are we going to get paid? Even the, it's not sleek at all. It, the the whole spaceship just looks old and dirty and dusty. Definitely not Star Trek. Part of that influence did come from Star Wars. Obviously that had a big influence on, on, on Ridley because he wasn't, he wasn't interested in particularly doing sci-fi. He's, he even says that he didn't believe in sci-fi. He had made The Duelist, which is a period piece. As his first film, he was already looking at another period piece. And then Star Wars came out. And he was like, what am I doing? I need to step up my game and, and see what else is out there. And he got that script for, for, for Alien. And, you know, obviously got a, got a vision for it. But, yeah, he, they wanted that ship to look like it was, like it was lived in. Another thing is the score can help you drive a point across Um, in the cryogenic scene. uh, You know, how do you wake people up? You know, they've been asleep for two years. How do you let the viewer know that a lot of time is passing while they're waking up in a way that he did that was using the score. And then also, if you notice, like between cuts, it's like instead of it being like a straight cut, they're like dissolves. They're like slow dissolves going from each cut as they're waking up. When you listen to it, the score does kind of. I don't know. It has an interesting vibe to it versus the rest of the film in that particular scene. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith, uh, who who scored the the film, just it, it's it stands out and it it pulls on you. And I, I love the themes in Alien of birth, then rebirth, and and, and and coming to life. It's just kind of just prominent throughout. And even again, when 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 the cryopods open up. And everything mm-hmm. is just so white and clean and, and pure, and it literally is like they're they're they're, they're coming coming back That's to true. life, you yeah. Know, coming coming out of this this hibernation, and yeah, the musical cues uh, that were put in place by Goldsmith just 
continue to highlight that. Free the nipple. In the cryogenic scene, <laughs> uh, this is some, this is another observation. The women had to wear surgical tape on their nipples because if they did not, they probably would have lost five countries for distribution, according to the actress Veronica Cartwright, who is the actress who had Lambert. the blood. There was Lambert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, had yeah, the blood sprayed Lambert. on her. And also another thing, like the banter back and forth with the cast and crew is interesting because, you know, of course, this is before, you know, this is pre-Me Too. And so they're really open about, like, sexuality. You know, you have one of the actors is like, all I was thinking about was vagina. And he didn't use that word. Yeah. <laughs> you can figure out the other word that he used. Yeah, they were, they were, yeah, all kinds of slight, not even slight. They were like, yeah, different, like, kind of sexual innuendos and some and some overtones. Um, amongst uh, amongst the cast and crew, that may just be a, a comfort and a, a camaraderie from throughout the the years and the and the time. And they even mentioned in, in one of the features that I watched that you know, from a direction standpoint, you can really was really focused on the look and the feel of the film. And so the crew, they the the actors, they spent a lot of time together. They really did bond over the course of the making of the film. Even in the commentaries, I think that still tends to to come through we're like an environment where things are pc so when we hear other adults talking like this and they're not in character they're just being themselves it's like it's kind of shocking in a way it's like can i say that you know mm. in your brain you're thinking that but it's, it's kind of cool to see adults just be adults um as you alluded to earlier um casting is crucial you know if like you said earlier if you cast right you know 50 percent of your job is is done and really he really takes his time when he's going through that casting process and when you see the pedigree of actors that he brought on, you see different projects they they went on to. You know, a couple of a couple of these actors have have passed on, like John Hurt, and uh, recently, if I'm not mistaken, Harry Dean Stanton. Which one? Which on. one is he? Uh, he is the gentleman who played. Uh, he he was Brett. He was Parker's Parker's buddy. Okay. Uh, he he actually just passed away. He just passed away uh, last year. Wow. Uh, so yeah, it's fairly recently, but uh, but John Hurt, I mean, he's a storied actor, strong, strong career. Uh, likewise, Ian Holm, strong career, stage. Uh, even Sigourney Weaver herself, I mean, this is her first starring role, mm-hmm. and she came from a acting and, and Broadway background, and she also wasn't really interested in doing the film uh, initially, <laughs> and she was the last uh, cast member that um that Ridley brought on and she had accidentally during the process to audition she had accidentally gone to the wrong hotel and and she was wearing what she calls her hooker her hooker boots and uh once she arrived at the at the the hotel and the Ridley and his his uh production partners could could hear somebody outside kind of quickly walking up and then stopping to compose themselves and then she kind of when she came into the room they just noticed her presence and they obviously noticed her height uh, as you mentioned earlier, Reginald, she's 5'11", so with those boots on, she probably was 6'6", six, 6'1", six, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a, a towering presence. Um, you know, she's got a, a, obviously a good look a good look to her and made an impression. And they they knew, okay, if we're going, if we're going to have a, a female lead who also is going to be the hero, then, yeah, they, they knew I'd figured they had found her, but they still had her do some test screenings. And they mm-hmm. actually had her do test screenings in the actual set that really was still building, uh, which was really cool for uh, Sigourney because she got a chance to, to she, she learned a lot, obviously, but she mm-hmm. got a chance to kind of break in and, and get her, her feet wet by, by doing those scenes. And then they showed them to some of the women who worked at Fox just to get their reactions to her. 
Mm-hmm. Some said, oh, she kind of looks like Jane Fonda. And there were some other complimentary things that were said uh, that really helped them say, okay, yeah, we've, we've, we've got the right person. I know she mentioned that she, um, she needed that, that environment of being actually on set, and it helped her out a lot. And she actually, when she was scared, she wanted to actually really be scared. And so that, that's kind of cool how you can see how actors need that environment where some actors, they can just be dialed in. They've been doing it for so long, they just can do it on cue where other ones, they need to be in that space. True, true. Know your why. Um, there's a shot when a spaceship is coming down on the planet and you see like the vapor coming out and really says, you know, the experts will say there's no atmosphere in space. This guy was like, in this film, it is. And the reason that he said that is because his models didn't look too good without that vapor. So he knew why he was doing what he was doing. Yeah, the Nostromo was um, actually a four-foot model. Only a four-foot model when you would see it from a distance. Obviously, then they, they built the sets for the, the close-ups in, in the interior. And it was largely influenced by the look of, um, of Kubrick's uh, 2001 Space Odyssey mm-hmm. had a big, big influence on that. But yeah, plenty of smoke and <laughs> in, in, in carbon dioxide and dry ice all throughout this film. Even in Blade Runner, you know, and with the models that he used in Blade Runner, he had a lot of vapor, you know, in, in his scenes to sell it as a real location. Um, another point, nobody respects you later for being a nice guy and giving up. You have to get exactly what you want. And one of the examples he used was uh, the part where they, the actors were in the spaceship chairs and they had a guy just moving it real fast and it was pissing everybody off and they were kind of protesting a little bit. Um, he said, you'll be unpopular, but I'll forgiven, you know, when you pull it off later. And it's so fascinating, Reginald, when, when you when you bring that up, because Ridley did have to fight for for, for multiple things on this film. Uh, even when it came time to starting production, there were there were days, there were times where they were just setting up the shots and there were executives who had come and flown over to England and while really would be there and getting the set set up the the set ready and you know getting the cinematography ready and the execs are standing around saying what's taking him so long why isn't he shooting anything <laughs> and and other production team members and even the riders were like what are you talking about he has to shoot you know do so many setups within a day and you're, you know, riding him in. Like I said, at one point, really got so frustrated that he literally like punched a hole through like one of the ceilings of a one one of the pieces of the set just out of sheer frustration. Um, but he continually fought for what he felt was needed on set. And when you talk about those seats shaking, even the cameras, like he in one of the commentaries, he mentioned that it's almost like the introduction of shaky cam. Like that wasn't something that you you did. And so him moving the camera back and forth to emulate the motion and, and all that kind of stuff and having people say, shake the seats was uh, was groundbreaking. Some of the scenes every now and then will be slightly out of focus or on the outer edges, they'll be slightly out of focus. And that might be due to like the anamorphic lenses, but specifically like certain shots are they're out of focus. But maybe the performance was was done well. And he just kept it. He mentioned that he mentioned that. Um, with the anim- with the anamorphic lenses, that those were some of the challenges you have because of the amount of something with the amount the amount of glass. I'm not a cinematographer, so forget it. Yeah, but, but I can listen. <laughs> 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 but he was he was mentioning some of the challenges 
that they had with that and mentioning that there are at times you might get some 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 focusing issues or, or problems but uh, it also gives you the opportunity to have like different lens flares uh, show up uh, mm-hmm. out, of, out of different scenes and you know, from different lighting sources uh, but he did mention that that sometimes okay. you would have some out of focus uh, shots that would come from that well good good catch yeah, and, and I noticed I knew it was anamorphic just because of whenever I see the the lens flare, it'll be like kind of like the Michael Bay uh, mm. lines, and that's that lets you know that it's anamorphic. Um, unless now digitally you can put that stuff in, but Ridley is a master of atmosphere. Um, in my opinion, I believe every director has his or own like superpower, and really he's he's got that thing with texture, mood. He has that subtle subtle feel, feeling, and without it, it'll probably be a lesser picture. As we mentioned earlier, the people feel real. The environment feels all authentic, though it's though it's foreign and though it was set in the future. And though even uh, with the time we live in now, you know, almost 40 years later, it's still set in the future. But it seems so plausible and feasible that, again, these are people who are just doing the work that needs to be done. You know, people who are again blue collar and people who maybe don't get along all the time, like at times co-workers you know can people who you know, want to make sure they're getting their cut people who will say what the hell are we doing going down to a planet to check things out we're we're not qualified for this we're trying to get back home and to be in a in a, in a set that's that's also meant to feel claustrophobic mm-hmm. you know in that you know, you make a turn and then the hallways seem tight and and snug uh areas of the ship seem Dark, creepy, damp, moist, yuck. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, man. And then, of course, you put all that with the music, and then you add in a face hugger, a chest burster, and a xenomorph. Yeah, man. Audiences were freaking out in the theaters. You know, we have this almost disadvantage that we've been exposed to alien and alien culture mm-hmm. for pretty much all of our lives, multiple sequels and now prequels. But can you imagine? Can you um, can you imagine being in the theater and watching this thing in the dark with no other kind of precursor of this kind of uh, atmosphere and all that kind of stuff um, prior? Uh, it would have been. Terrifying. It caught me a couple times, especially d- during the last act. You know, I'm mm-hmm. chilling. You're like, all right, you know, it's the movie's about to be over, and then this dude, the hand just comes out, and they got the little sound effect. I'm like, really? They got me. They got me on that one. Oh yeah, that's it. Still gets me. And when I was watching it today, you know, I was like, that gummy. <laughs> that jump one, and then there's another one when Dallas is in the corridor and the little air ducts or whatever he was at. <laughs> and they cut to the alien. He's like, surprise! <laughs> the, the jazz hands? Yeah. Hey! <laughs> I was like, oh, man. <laughs> but, you, you know, you talk about the look of the alien, right? Giger's design. But then, I mean, you know, it, it takes a village, right, to pull off a film. And it takes luck uh, as well to find the right people. And we talked about some of the cast, but we we hadn't mentioned the the actor who plays the alien, uh, Bolaji Badejo. He was found by uh, someone who runs a studio who saw him at a pub, and they knew that they were looking for somebody to fit into the alien costume, and they knew it had to be somebody who was tall, but also very skinny. And so they had looked at some different models, and so they found this guy. He was actually a graphic designer. 
Um, <laughs> and they, they brought him in. And he's an African guy. Maybe he might be Nigerian. I'm, I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, I mean, the guy's arms are just, I mean, freakishly long. Almost like the kind of arms where like, they almost go down to your knees just while he's standing. Wow. And so uh, I watched some of the test shots of, of him just in the with the alien head on and just in some trunks just creeping around the ship and just when he's in the shadows you're like like dude looks creepy man (laughs) i can't imagine like being an actor going against that like that's crazy dude yeah so they had him take some mime classes and um some tai chi classes so you get that kind of the slow methodical movements and yeah when you just watch those 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 test shots it's legit creepy even like it's just a guy with a head you're like woo, this this is creepy but that and adds to the to the atmosphere, to the tension, and the, the yeah the design of the costume. So in that last scene, the aliens just chilling. Like, was it injured or what's going on there? Because he's just like chilling, like sleep over here. So one of the things about uh, uh, the xenomorph and the aliens is that they are highly intelligent and they they're tactical and they they know. And and throughout the franchise, we we continually see that there is always this 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 strange connection between Ripley and the Xenomorphs. And obviously that that progresses through. And they even mentioned that there was almost going to be a scene at the end that they actually wanted to shoot that was almost like, you know, kind of pseudo-sexual where the alien was going to kind of look at at Ripley maybe while she was in the cryo chamber and kind of notice her, her, her soft flesh and its kind of hard exterior and kind of be maybe turned on by that. But they, the executive was like, no. That's probably That's, a good idea. Yeah, so they didn't go that far. But I think the alien knew that, that that ship was going to be destroyed and that it needed to infiltrate. Because when the, the alien host, when the facehugger attaches to whatever host it chooses and it impregnates it and puts its seed in, whatever comes out of that is going to be a hybrid of that race along with the xenomorph. So mm-hmm. it taking over human hosts, which is humans, you know, we are an intelligent species, you're going to have then... That I assume that kind of intelligence passed on, and you have the rapid growth. I mean, that thing becomes, yeah. you know, from the little chest burster to adult alien in what hours. So this is a highly evolving species. So who knows what the how we would rate its intelligence? So it just knew to be there and was gonna chill. <laughs> and and it, it is susceptible to cold. Uh, the the aliens are susceptible to cold. So maybe being there in space, maybe that was. Um, yeah, enough to keep it kind of bundled up. And she hit it with cold, you know, blasted a couple mm-hmm. times to get it to, to come out before, you know, jettisoning it into space. In that scene, like, why is Sigourney Weaver wearing, like, the smallest panties in America? <laughs> no, uh, with the... Because <laughs> <laughs> they, they were in these big old boxes and stuff earlier, right? And then, like, what? I don't know. That was just random. I think it's also, again, a, a thing of the times because even like kind of how bikinis were mm-hmm. done uh, back then, if you look at, you know, just look at bikinis back in the day, like that's, you know, I guess kind of how some of those. It was a style. Yeah, I think that, that definitely is a style thing. And okay. also when it comes to the cryogenic chambers, again, like earlier, Ridley, even his even in his original sketches, he, he wanted them to be like, he figured if you were in cryogenic freeze, you would be totally, totally naked. And so, you know, obviously he's got her stripping down. But yeah, but yeah, the panties, I think that's just a, a style. Necessity is the mother of invention. There was a part when they were on the uh, planet, whatever that planet was that they landed the spaceship on. Mm-hmm. And they got a re- regular camcorder 
uh, from somebody's home and they started taking shots of the of the ship and i think because the model didn't look well if they would have shot it with the regular film camera is that what it was the model looked fine of the spaceship as long as the the film was the film camera was stationary and it was like a wide shot but once they started moving around it it made the um you can kind of tell it was a model but they got the camcorder and they were just kind of move, had one of the actors, I guess, move around with the camcorder or was the actor or the DP. I don't know. Somebody had the camcorder and they were just moving around with it. And so they broadcast that signal to the robot Ash and they kind of had the signal go in and out. And so, Ridley did that. Ridley? Mm-hmm. Oh, Ridley was shooting with the camcorder. Yeah, really shot with an older camera mm-hmm. because he, he actually wanted also the effect of, again, bringing that, that tension and suspense and atmosphere to the audience like, we can't see what's really going on. Hey, wait, wait, wait. Why can't we? Why can't we see? It's all fuzzy. And then he would, yeah, send it back to the monitors, and, and yeah, like, kind of running it almost through filters to make it mm-hmm. look bad and unreliable, and just to in- increase the the tension of of the audience that we couldn't really know what was going on. Knowing how to design gives you a competitive advantage. Ridley, he liked the script, and he began storyboarding the whole movie. If you know Ridley, he's trained as an illustrator. His scene, to me, his compositions are like real nice and structured and so i wonder if by storyboarding your movie out does it give you like more insight on exactly how you're going to shoot did he mention anything uh, about that in the director's commentary he did actually he mentioned that is that is the reason why he likes to do his own storyboards because he said it, it forces you to think about how you're going to shoot uh it pushes you to think about again all the elements of you know of of, of your lighting your different kinds of set setups um, but yeah, it starts. It it gets him thinking about okay, how am I going to shoot this scene? Yeah, so that's a, a big reason why Ridley handles his own storyboards and will even develop all kinds of concept art. Did it? I mean, in Prometheus, I mean, wow, there's full blown paintings that he created just to dive back into into that world. This inspired me, you know, to begin illustrating again. You know, I used to read comic books when I was in elementary school and middle school and not necessarily for like the stories, but because of the illustrations. I would, you know, I would admire the art and see if I could copy, you know, with the illustrator. I'll try to draw my own version of that. Me and a group of friends and I remember in elementary school, we would um, write like our own comic books, you know, comic strips. We'll do it like in, you know, one period and like make fun of the teacher or like and some of our stuff was like kind of violent, too. It was kind of interesting. Like our our stuff was violent. Yeah, really, Scott, he ignited my interest back into looking through comic books and illustrations. And he's got me motivated, inspired. I wanted to start drawing again. Today, I started looking. There was this artist. It was um, African-American guy. His name is Stephen Hughes. And he passed away 2000, 2001, around that time. But. I was reading uh, some of his comic books in 90, 95, 96, and he has a um, character called Evil Ernie. Oh. And Lady Death. Lady Death is hot. She's got, she's, <laughs> she's the one in all white. My, my pops used to collect some of her, I think I probably still have mm-hmm. some, uh, yeah, she's all white, all white, white hair, red lipstick. Yeah, she has, yeah, the white hair, her mm-hmm. eyes are all white. All white, yeah. And she I just know. has like this bikini, this black bikini. It's the 90s. <laughs> That is the 90s, 90s comics right there. But man, the way that this guy 
uh, drew it, I was like just attracted to his art just because of the amount of detail that he had in his illustrations. I'm really like drawn to black and white illustrations. But of course, they, you know, he had a colorist that colored his stuff in and inked it in, but I liked his illustrations. It was just a lot of details before the colorist got to it. Um, and I was, I was really drawn to that. So yeah, look him up. Stephen Hughes, like right now on eBay, you can look up his illustrations and they're selling for like thousands of dollars. Wow. Him being African-American looking, I was like, oh, okay, I can do it. <laughs> hey, inspiration and, and, and motivation, you know? You know, when you, when you mentioned the impact of, of, of the artwork and seeing what really is doing. It's, it's really fascinating with this project, even with the, the, the writer, uh, Ed O'Bannon, he actually talks about how when, when they brought H.R. Uh, Giger on, I hope I'm saying his name right, I was one, Giger, Geiger. Geiger. Okay, that sounds Geiger. better. All right, we're going to call you Geiger. <laughs> All right, well, when they brought H.R. Geiger on and um, they, they wanted him to start working on the face hugger, and so he came up with some initial sketches and sent them back over to Ed. And then Ed was talking with Ripley. And what Ed did is that he then took uh, Geiger's design and began to, to modify it and, and, and make a version of it, showing it actually wrapped around somebody's head. And then he actually asked the other production designer, uh, Ron Hobb, who is just a master at, at figuring out the details and functionality in, in the artwork. He I think designed the, the the ship and things of that nature. He's just he has an eye for that, and so he figured out how the 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 fingers, if you will, of the face hugger would look and the knuckles and how it would wrap up. And so Ed O'Bannon played a big part in designing the face hugger. Though he's a you know by trade you'd almost say oh well he's a he's a writer. Yet he's even involved in the design process. So uh, I think we can you know both take a cue of just looking into ways to to be able to design and communicate your ideas and i think Mm -hmm. that gives ripley such a huge heads up even when you look at other projects again i've referenced prometheus multiple times because there's so much work he did to communicate his ideas and that means he also can communicate with any department on set no this is what i really want and and he could go ahead and 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 give you a an idea a starting Mm -hmm. point or he can finish it himself say okay make it look more like this or go this way or that way uh, and you know, Ridley is pretty demanding, and because mm-hmm. he knows his stuff, you're not gonna just get by and slack off. He'll, he'll, he'll catch you. I like the fact that he that he is storyboarding, and it made me think of a correlation because Robert Rodriguez, he is trained as an artist as well, and he had a comic book strip when he was at the University of Texas in Austin. He would draw a lot of his some of his stories. He would draw them out. For example, like Four Rooms, he did like a whole comic book strip there's got to be something to you know storyboarding and being able to communicate visually um, what's going on so much so that originally the budget for the film was about 4.6 million mm-hmm. and then after showing the executives his storyboards they were able to bump that up to about nine ish you know they're kind of fuzzy with these numbers you know they thought you know it's not they're not going to ever tell you they made a profit or they're not going to be exact about it but they he said about nine ish yeah but they practically doubled the budget after seeing Ridley's storyboarding and and, and to your your point um, a few moments ago Reginald with some of these different uh, directors being trained uh, in in the arts in different ways you know you can even look to uh, the Josh Whedon's and the J.J. Abrams of the world they've had runs on comic books you know Josh Whedon did a, a run on Astonishing X-Men uh, years ago uh, likewise J.J. Abrams did uh, the miniseries uh, Ultimate Hulk versus Wolverine now he didn't illustrated but he did the writing but who knows maybe he he did some drawings as well 
So uh, I think definitely there is a, a correlation there. How to get a cat to react. <laughs> can you, you can talk about, you know, how they what they did to do that. Sure. So obviously there is the, the, the cat that is on set. And is it? it's not Charlie. What is that cat's name? Um, yeah, I forget. Uh, it's a small little cat that, that's that's on set. I it's a Garfield-looking cat. Yeah. I want to call him Charlie for whatever reason, but that, that that's not quite right. But um, so this little cat is, is, is on set and... The scene where Harry Dean Stanton's character is getting ready to die, and you know, you know, he's about to die. He he goes off by himself. He he walks into into the room where one of the giant legs of uh, uh, of the ship is located, and there's chains and and condensation coming down. And he's one like, thing, one thing, kitty, kitty, kitty. one thing about that scene: water coming out of nowhere, just coming down. Just, and he's putting his face in it like <laughs> I didn't think about it at first but mm-hmm. then in the commentator like you know where's water coming from but he's like and then really like I want it to be well he's like <laughs> it's condensation <laughs> and you know if you're on a ship and you've got things working and and, 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 and functioning yeah or maybe something is not functioning again it's an older ship that, I guess that for me it's always the answer oh, it's an older ship you know it's <laughs> it's older something is not working it right. does look better though ha- yeah. having water makes everything look better there you, you go know, same for music videos having the water there it's always better but <laughs> yeah there was a lot of <laughs> there's a, a lot of um you know people looking shiny and sweaty and a lot of it is is glycerine aka apparently a like ky jelly there's a lot of ky <laughs> ky jelly used uh throughout the throughout the film and that remind me of, a, of one of the stories they they mentioned uh when they talk, to, they talk about like the, the alien on set, and and you know it's always just dripping stuff, and they Dude. mention, yeah, and <laughs> what so, they say. Well, it's always like you know, <laughs> you know, dripping, and, and so it was, it was con- they were constantly having to apply more like KY jelly on, it. and they mentioned there was one of the one of the guys who had like wardrobe, and like they were like, oh, we need to put more KY jelly, on it. and he was like, I'll do it, you know, and, and was like just <laughs> like more than happy to apply the KY jelly on the. <laughs> Oh, uh, uh, the alien. Anyway, um, so during the scene where Harry Dean Stanton's character, uh, Brent, is, is trying to find the cat. Again, I'm going to call him Charlie. All right. I mean, I have it right, but I'm going to call him Charlie for now. When he's trying to find Charlie, um, you know, as as Brent's character is, is, is looking for him and then and then finds him, you know, that cat is there and, you know, looking kind of innocent and he's reaching for him. And then all of a sudden the cat hisses like... And the way really Scott got the cat to react because they were having troubles getting it to react is that they they brought a German shepherd on set and they just kept a, uh, they kept it on a leash. OK, the cat didn't get hurt during the, the filming, uh, but they kept the German shepherd on a leash and this they kept it behind this uh, like a board and they would just when they needed to get the cat to react, they would remove the board and the cat would see the German shepherd and, you know, freak out. And uh, and that's how they got the, the cat to react. So I guess you got to do what you what you got to do. So like I said, you know, the uh, necessity is the the mother of uh, of of I guess an invention and uh, ingenuity. So Sigourney Weaver, her character, goes and finds this cat. Would you go back your <laughs> to save this cat? You know, it's I don't get it. me personally. I don't know. Like I I don't think that's the most important thing. Not even a question. <laughs> Not even a question. I absolutely would not go back for a cat. <laughs> nah, nah, I'm sorry. Like, there there are 
people who have passed away. And okay, so this actually makes me think of, of, of another point I hadn't really thought about. And I guess we see the later act, the action later on in Alien. But so after Dallas dies and Sigourney is now the she's now the the leader, and she's she's hell bent on following through with with Dallas's plan. Mm-hmm. Instead of just getting them all off the ship and having them just leave. And when you think about it, her plan actually fails because yeah, her peeps die. Yeah, everybody's dead. Yeah. And it's like, man, you know, I know she's probably kind of in shock by the time she gets on the ship and, you know, you, know, you have the fourth act. But uh, but when you get to Aliens, you do see more. She she kind of decompresses from that and is it is she feels more of the effects. But I'm like. Yeah, a cat, and maybe, maybe that she felt like if there's anybody could save, maybe it's this, it's this cat because everybody else is gone. So, and there was another jump cut because she's looking for the cat, and then bam, like the seat pops out of nowhere, and then the cat jumps out. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and they do that also earlier when they're trying to when the face hugger uh, leaves Kane's body, mm-hmm. and they're trying to figure out where it's at. She bumps into something or something like that. Ah, you know, you're like, ah. yeah, that was a cheap one. Yeah. yeah. That was- <laughs> It worked though. Putting you on edge, right? It worked. Atmosphere. So really said, yeah, I would go back and get my cat or whatever. I'm like, come on, man. He said his uh dogs. Dog was it the yeah, dog? He has okay. like two dogs. Again, with a dog, there's something about a dog, you know. Maybe <laughs> if you're a cat person, you're super sympathetic to cats. Sure, they make great YouTube videos. But yeah, there's some of my dogs, you know, they would make some kind of weird sound, that little, you know, kind of high whistly sound they make sometimes. I'm like <sighs> Xenomorph. Gotta go, Rover. Gotta go. Gotta go, Rover. Oh, man. Do your homework. Ridley wanted the movie to look like 2001 Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick, but he wanted the rhythm of the classic scare movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So he, the producer, DP, they rented all the scary movies at the time and watched them like, like being in school. He didn't want the movie to be like a pretentious, you know, I wouldn't say Star Wars, but space opera movie. Um, he wanted to be straightforward, like Psycho in space. Yes, and he he felt that uh, if he could make the film as kind of as raw as he could, that it would it would uh, it would come across more terrifying, um, and it would be it would it would be it would be scarier. And you know, like Reginald said, you know, kind of having a bit of the look of 2001: Space Odyssey, but again, some of the the beats and pushes some of the boundaries like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Have you have you seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original? Mm-mm. I saw the remake. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. I, I, I think I may I saw a part of the remake one day, and I think I started to watch the original maybe a year or so ago, and then I, mm-hmm. I stopped because I got busy or something like that. But I I, I do want to see it just because it's, it's like kind of a staple, you know? Right. You got to get back to that one. The, even the remake is just creepy. It's like, ah, oh, man. Because you can see that happening. You know, you go into the... You're driving and you're just on the... <laughs> You is it based on the true story, though? Is it? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. In, in, yeah. Now in that's even, that's even more scary. In, in 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 Texas, that's a sad shame. Like, you just you can feel that when you go to these random neighbor. You know, you're driving, you're on a road road trip or whatever, and you go to these small towns. You're like, what are these people doing? Like, they have a lot of time to do nothing. Another point: break the rules. Uh, there's a fourth act in the movie, and yes, part one, Sigourney Weaver. She's you know basically the movie's pretty much done. You know, she she escaped. She's on the little ship and, you know, she's get to decompress. She's about to get ready for the cryogenic uh, little area with the cat. <laughs> That's right. She does have the cat. Um, and 
out of nowhere, the freaking xenomorph. Is it xenomorph? Am I saying this right? Xenomorph, yes, sir. The xenomorph is chilling right there. I'm just like, really? And the hand just comes out. Yeah. I'm like, come on. Like, <laughs> you know that some people probably piss their pants <laughs> during that scene because you've gone through all this tension and you're like, oh, thank goodness it's finally over. And you know, and everything's just subtle and calm. And they, they talk about that being a, um, oh man, what an obscure, is it an obscure? Ooh, obscure effect is where you is where you don't realize what you're looking at initially. Oh, okay. And then all of a sudden it either comes into focus or something happens and you realize it's been there the whole time. Yeah, they got me on that one because I was I, I rewound it and looked at it and I was like, it's there. Is there the mm-hmm. whole time? You don't he's that's what I'm saying. The thing's just chilling there. Like, why he just kill her? Like, why doesn't he just jump out? And kill her right then and there. You know, again, with these creatures being highly intelligent, if it kills her, where does it go next? If if she's dead yeah. and the autopilot isn't isn't set or what? You do have a point. Yeah. Then where is it going to go next? If this thing has the right kind of survival instincts and intelligence, yeah. then its best bet probably is to just stay there. So maybe it reaching out was maybe part defense mechanism because she didn't know if it was gonna if she was gonna attack it. Yeah. If it wants to survive, then it. It kind of needs to just kind of stay there and and chill. And even, you know, we get glimpses of when it comes to uh, Alien 3, mm-hmm. when that movie opens up, you know, apparently one of the face huggers has, you know, got onto the ship and uh, and the ship crashes and the little girl is, is dead and, and whoever else had survived is also dead. And then, of course, you have Ripley, but then apparently, you know, she's been impregnated, you know, with 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 an alien but um yeah i think that um the alien was trying to survive so he was just gonna chill there and also that's a, it's a testament to uh geiger's design <laughs> and even on the ship before this thing is so kind of biomechanical that it in those dark settings and with when you have tubes and all that kind of stuff with that kind of interior design it it blends in so well so yeah, so she jumps back and I'm just like, man, this thing isn't over yet. So this is the fourth act, you know, her, you know, defending herself and and it actually works because once she finally defeats the thing and gets it kicked into our space, you can kind of get that relief again. It's just like, okay, we're good now. You know, you, you can close you can close the curtain now. And um really he pitched this idea and I think at the time the budget was like an eight point six or something like that. And he pitched the idea in order to shoot that last uh that last act yes yes he did it took him what like i think four days or something like that Mm -hmm. i think to to shoot that last bit and it 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 really does work and of course since then we we would see so many movies go on to have a fourth and and fifth act oh no not done yet not done yet but (laughs) it really works in this film i know when i first watched it i was yeah i didn't i didn't know xeno was chilling in the cut (laughs) yeah that hand just pops out and you're like so going back to ash the character ash the robot i didn't know it was a robot i saw the other films before like i saw covenant i saw prometheus so i just mm-hmm. assumed that they would have a robot mm-hmm. on because that's kind of like the person that knows everything while you're doing your cryogenic stuff the person that knows what's going on was ash in the cryogenic was he in that area he was interesting because like in prometheus and everything the android is operating the ship and waking everybody up that's true so here's an interesting thing, right? Because that's a, a, a prequel, and I don't know exactly how much time has passed in between. I think that one of the one of the things that they worked at doing was making the models 
even more human, mm. uh, even pulling more humanity into them. So maybe, maybe the newer models, right, as opposed to David's model, would have a need to sleep uh, or to slumber. Maybe that would be for the safety of the crew or kind of to trust them a little bit, a little bit more, perhaps. Um, when I first watched it, I didn't know that Ash was a uh, a replicant. Perhaps right, right. Which really actually refers to to him as a replicant in mm-hmm. in, in in the commentary, but I didn't know that he was a cyborg, humanoid, uh, a robot. But I had seen Aliens and Bishop's character, mm-hmm. and when he gets spoiler alert, you know, ripped in half and kind of the the white blood and and, and gunk, and so Ash caught me off guard. He just seemed like kind of a little weird science dude. But he was more. So yeah, and I thought it was gross to having the white blood, and he said that was water and like water that's got a tint to it, or was it ink, or what they they colored it? It was water that was colored. White. Yeah, they said it's colored colored water. They couldn't use milk because it would turn bad and and, and sour. They used yeah. it, I think, after the his block gets knocked off. <laughs> Which practical effect wise, it works. Shocking. It worked. Every time I see it, I'm like, oh, because <laughs> that dude like took a swing. Wow. And just knocked it. I was like, mm. he's like doing the, <laughs> he's doing the robot. The Dave Chappelle robot. <laughs> Dude was strong though. Like, so it, it was kind of trippy just seeing that. And then I was like, this guy all of a sudden, I didn't know he was the bad robot. You know, he's trying to kill her with a, with a magazine. Like, what's that about? Okay. So what they say with that is because he is, let uh, some say he may be like two thirds human and maybe like a, a, a yeah two-thirds human and maybe one-third machine but that he um doesn't have sexual reproductive organs but yet maybe he still has the desire and that in that moment when he's shoving the, the dirty magazine in ridley's mouth that's almost like a sexual act mm. and, and that he's malfunctioning because in the the mother terminal database area where he kind of you know, shows up, you know, next to Rid- next to uh, Ripley and she pushes him that and he kind of makes a little funny kind of little herky jerky move mm-hmm. oh, just oh so briefly. I think that's the kind of the beginning of him beginning to malfunction. Okay. Hence why now he's doing this weird magazine in the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> magazine in the mouth move to a. Uh, to Ripley, but man, he throws her around like a ragdoll. Which that's uh, that turn is so quick, and he's like just like one handing like this. Oh, he rips her hair out. It's like, oh yeah, the the, the the bit of hair, and you're like, what is going on? And then even it's kind of funny to see it now, but you know it really hurt when when Parker's trying to pull him off, and he kind of does the claw, and like just kind of grabs his peck, like that guy has a little pro wrestling feel to it, but. I'm sure that would hurt if that was an Android hand, you know, <laughs> crushing your pectoral. <laughs> that'll get your block knocked off. That's what that'll do. But I like that it's still effective, you know, having that blood and white blood coming down and just like just bubbling out. <laughs> and if y'all seen Blade Runner, uh, which is also another Ridley Scott film, one of the replicants, when she gets injured, she does like the little freak out and she's like moving around and stuff. So it, it is hurts. that Daryl Hannah's, uh Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, when he starts spinning, even before his head gets knocked off, when he's like kind of like just like spinning around, when he, he gets hit the first time, mm-hmm. he's kind of just spinning him and like it, that. That scene is well done. And then that the killer strike, <laughs> boom! I'm like, oh. 
I'm very. Oh, you know what they said? I, I actually I remember uh, hearing it. He, uh, really, Scott mentions it in the commentary that is actually a uh, there's a smaller person in the in the suit. That's why the arms kind of look kind of like funny in that in that moment. And that way, you know, it's moving around. That way, they can have the head knocked off. But it's a smaller person in the in the suit. That's what makes it so effective. When you did the arms, it reminded me of uh, what movie? What show was that? The Office, the the BBC version, mm. and the guy. What's uh, Garrett? What's the main guy? Uh, Michael. Ger Gervais. Gervais. Am I, I, saying I, haven't, I haven't seen the the the, the original. Is it Rick Gervais? Am I saying his name? Oh, right? Ricky Gervais. Gervais. Yeah. So he's playing the main character, and then he was like, "What's the, what's the right word? Is it midget or <laughs> or or a dwarf? I think it's with the maybe it's because of the hands." It was, <laughs> so <laughs> he was trying to figure out the right way to. And he was talking to somebody who was a smaller person, so it was funny. Ah. So um, just from a production standpoint one of the things that was interesting that ripley did a lot of was when it came to some of the effects like again the, the face hugger using things like the entrails of cows um, oh, yeah sheep even aquatic like like aquatic life like clams mm-hmm. uh, especially when you see the, the the inside when the face hugger is turned like face up and they're trying to examine it and that's like a giant clam uh and using those real organic pieces of, of of tissue really helps add to this the grotesqueness of the, the creatures and even making a choice and this again ed o'bannon this was his creative choice he got really to sign off on the face hook originally was going to be like green or some kind of weird color but once they initially did the mock-up for it in the prototype it was kind of flesh colored and he said you know what let's leave it flesh colored and not paint it and that makes it all the more freaking creepy it is. I'm glad they went with that. Green would have been like kind of cliche. And this movie, again, for its time, it was anything but cliche. So many unconventional things that were done that we take for granted now from the fourth act to the look and the design of, of the aliens to, you know, the, the flesh colored face hugger to, you know, having something literally in, in, impregnate you and, and then, you know, maybe come out of you. The slow build, like these things were not common in 79 and uh alien alien kind of changed the game and so uh, i'm glad you finally had a chance to 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 yes. check it out and, and and take it in for for what it is again it, it it has become one of my one of my favorite films and you saw just a theatrical cut you haven't seen mm-hmm. the director's cut there's yeah there's a couple of just a couple of added added scenes in that again they aren't totally necessary they don't totally change the film but they're they're interesting to see so if you get a chance to watch those i, I definitely recommend that too I've just recently watched Blade Runner 2049. Really? Yeah. Enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just being a fan of Blade Runner and just kind of seeing the continuation. And I started reading reviews and people were like, even really Scott said it's too long. He said the he's he produced it. <laughs> he said mm. it's too long. But almost like some people saying like the director was like just being too true to the original and could have did his own thing. But I appreciated it for what it was. So did you watch it in, in a theater? Did you get no, a chance to watch I, it in theater? I wish, but uh, I, I ended up just getting it, renting it. I watched it uh, IMAX. Wow. Yeah, because I, I just heard early reviews, and I heard like my man John Schnepp. Shout out to John Schnepp uh, on uh, Collider, uh, Collider Heroes. Big, big influence. And uh, he mentioned seeing it in IMAX. So I said, all right, Schnepp, 
No, I'm going to check this out. So maybe like it was like the maybe second or third week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I uh, went to AMC Parks and yeah. And I was just like, whoa. It's it eye candy. beautiful. It's eye candy. It is beautiful. It is a gorgeous film. And you know, I didn't. I didn't mind. I did not mind the the runtime. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the story was engaging enough. And I'll, I'm I'm going to say something. I'm a little controversial, but that's your deal. I like it better than the original, personally. I I, I like. I enjoyed this film more than the original Blade Runner. And I've seen I've seen different cuts of Blade Runner. You know, Blade Runner's cool, but I like this sequel. I like it better. So there. Take that. <laughs> They're like it's the same world, but it, to mm-hmm. me, it just feels like a continuation. It, it really does. But it's like Blade Runner with a little bit more money. That's what it feels like. It's like now you can actually flesh out the ideas of what they were talking about, and you can you can play on these. You can expand on the worlds a little bit more. And so I I, I appreciate that because there was limitations. You know, nineteen was it eighty one when that one came out. Still a gorgeous. I mean. The original still is a, is a is a gorgeous film. Yeah, I just yeah, I don't, I don't know why. I just I just I think even this for me I, think, I, I like the storytelling even even mm-hmm. better how it how it um, how it plays out. I, I kind of don't like the ending of of the way it ends. The first Blade Runner, mm-hmm. I, I don't like how it ends. But that's just that's all me. That's that's my personal deal. Because it ended with uh, the military guy, android replicant just dying right he just passed away because their lifespan was shorter at the time mm-hmm. and so he passes away and then what, what what happened after that i thought that was it we had the little the little bird flying off <laughs> like, uh, doesn't he does he does he end up going uh no he she does he end up going off by himself or does his um sean what's her name the actress sean and you know what i saw the director's cut so i it might have been different i think I think I saw the final mm-hmm. cut because there's like five different versions okay. of the film. The, the one that you saw, did it have a voiceover at the beginning? No. Okay, and neither did uh, neither did the one that I, that I watched. Now, I've seen the original, mm-hmm. but I think the one I saw was, the, I want to say it was like the final cut. Do I like this one better? I don't know. Yeah, for me, it's easy yes. That's a, that's a <laughs> easy, easy, easy yes. yes. Yeah, I, I enjoyed Ryan Gosling's performance, Jared Leto's performance, Harrison Ford did his thing, Dave Bautista. And shout out to Dave Bautista, oh, yeah. man. Yeah, it was. Yeah, he like, it. man, I, I love seeing the variety of roles he's 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 taking on, and even like he can do like just the kind of the subtle, quiet role, like what he did mm-hmm. in this. I was like, okay, just you know, cooking your food and, <laughs> and then turning on a rage. Uh, even um, Robin Wright. Oh yeah, she crushed uh, it. Yeah, from uh, House of Gods uh, and the Princess Bride from back in the day, yeah. Princess Buttercup. Wow, you took it all the way back. Yes, sir. Um, but yeah, I, I I'm looking forward to seeing it again. I, I, is it on Blu-ray? <laughs> yeah, I need to. Yeah, that's how I watched it. Um, yeah, maybe because I knew the limitation after listening to the, the commentary, knowing the limitations of the Blade Runner, he couldn't shoot the way he wanted to. He was boxed into a mm. lot of sets, so and it, the world wasn't as as massive as he wanted to be because he had to shoot it on sets, kind of like Alien. Um, yeah this guy had more money and you know we got the technology so he can he can do he can really explore and one of the sad things is is that it's still it was like a box office it didn't do well at the box office unfortunately similar to the the first blade runner mm-hmm. like this didn't perform well um sadly 
Um, I can see why. Sure. I mean, it, it, it is a lot to ask. Some people, you know, would say, oh, you could go in and see it without seeing the first one. I don't agree. Uh, it ties in so closely to the first one. I mean, I think, okay, I think you could maybe go in and watch it and enjoy it for what it is, but it ties in so closely to the first That's one. I think true. it's a lot of stuff. It requires you to think. Miss. And then the, um, the way that Ryan Gosling, the way he's acting, you have to have some backstory because, like, you're not they're not offering you that much. Same thing with Harrison Ford's character when on the first one. Then, as an actor, they're not giving you that much because they're replicants. So mm. they have to act a certain way. So the important question: You've seen the first one. You've seen the scene where Harrison Ford's eyes, maybe ever so quickly, may glimmer, may glow. Do you think? Or do you subscribe to the theory that maybe he's a replicant? Yes. Because uh, uh, I forgot the guy that was in the first one that was making all the little character things. The little gummy. Yeah, there was that Jay, uh, James almost. Is that who that was? That was almost. Yeah, I believe so. It has something to do with the memory, with their memories. So when Harrison Ford is always looking at those things, it's uh, like a memory trigger or something like that. The implanted memory. Mm, you think that's his, his his button to? <laughs> yeah, I don't know though. You know, but mm. I would say yeah, yeah. So he is a. A Blade Runner replicant mm-hmm. hunting other replicants. So is he an older, inferior model? Is that why he was getting his his butt kicked by? Uh, yeah, because by Rutger Howard's because they have different skill sets. So like that guy, he was next level with the military training, sure. and even uh, Daryl's character, she had military training, but it wasn't on the level of that leader. They had they had their own specialty. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> see now, man. See now, I make want to go have to watch it again. Did you listen to the uh, commentary on? The I didn't. I, I had rented it on, uh, okay. on on streaming. I was like, oh, let me go and check this out again. So, so I no. Think, I, I think Ridley actually it. said that he's a replicant. Really? Uh, I think so. I I have to go back. Mm. He I, just gave it up like that. I think so. Ridley. <laughs> well, I figured he would just leave that a. Uh, a mystery, but he, I think at the end he says it. Don't quote me on that, but I I believe he did. I would have swore I heard him say that. But so speaking of uh, something that really said on commentary, and this and this really stuck out to me on the on the nineteen ninety nine commentary for Alien. He had mentioned then, and he mentioned it in two thousand and three when he's talking with Sigourney Weaver about going back and exploring where the aliens came from. So I'm saying even back in ninety nine, he had mentioned wanting to go back and explore the space jockey, uh, go back and explore the origin of the aliens, and talking about them, even then, as biological weapons, which if you've seen Prometheus, uh, if you've seen Alien Covenant, it dives into that. So he had this like p- pretty clear idea of where he wanted to go back, and he was, even starts talking about who the who their, you know, these inventors would be, that they would, yeah, they, they would be an interesting kind of creator and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. I'm like, dude, he had this in his mind. I mean... Back in '99, that just that shocks me, man. I'm like, man, this dude, he 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 knew, but he kept saying that. Oh, I don't know if I want to do another horror movie again. I just I haven't you know, found what inspires me. But you know, obviously he he may have started pre-production on Prometheus. What it came out in 2012, uh, I think. So he would have started pre-production on that probably maybe like 2010 or so, because it took them a while uh-huh. to to make Prometheus. They put in time. They put in time and big money uh, mm-hmm. into that one but anyway i just wanted to, to mention that yeah man i think i think he mentioned it and they're he's a replicant and debatable but maybe maybe that the new blade runner is better 
I'm, I'm looking forward to watching it, uh, watching it again. Uh, I really, I man, you just you mentioning it, bringing it back up, like man, I really did, I really did enjoy that film. Yeah, and then I can appreciate it. You know, Harrison Ford being in the second one, and I'm glad. I don't think he has like any f- like facial work like some of these older uh, actors that like, get like surgery and stuff. I can appreciate people that just leave their faces alone and mm-hmm. just age gracefully. So it's cool to see. Hey, you know, him as an older person is pretty cool. I agree. It's cool to see actors be able to take older roles, and it that it's organic because okay, this is. This is who you are now, and that should be a, a privilege to say, okay, now I I can take on this kind of role. I can, you know, look like a, a a dad or a grandparent or a retiree or whatever. That's great. I think there's time and season for all kinds of roles. Now, as we get closer to crossing the uncanny valley, um, you know, you've got Scorsese right now working on the uh, the Irishman uh, for Netflix, where he's got Pesci. De Niro and Pacino all in it, but they're all using that de-aging technology. Oh, Lord. And, um, yeah. I don't, I don't like it. It's going to be fascinating to see how that turns out, but that's that's You can get away with it film. for like a few scenes, but like, mm-hmm. what movie? Uh, the Civil War with Captain uh, America Civil War. Yeah, and Robert Downey being younger. Yeah. It's like, okay, okay, but not a whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. Well, but you know, it's Scorsese, and he's a master. So that's true. I think he's gonna, you know, make sure they get it Are right. They, the whole movie, they're gonna be like that. I think a good chunk of it, yeah, it's gonna yeah. be kind of like flashback like that. And for him to go that route, mm-hmm. he's got to know something. You know, and he then, has to know something. And they had to really, because Pesci didn't want to do it. Pesci, like, he didn't want to do any more films. I think, he's, I guess, he's got semi-retired or whatever. Wow. And like, but they just kind of just. I think they backed up a dump truck of money to his door or something, but they they, they got him to come on. So, uh, I'll, I I think that a lot of proof's going to be in the first trailer. Right? But I think again, this is Scorsese, man. You ever seen Raging Bull? Yes. Yeah. A while uh, ago. Yeah, I, I watched it a couple of years back. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's that one scene towards the end where Pesci had lost all that weight. You see that? That's at the it very was Pesci? end. It was Pesci that did that. Yeah, he had lost. All I've never seen him that thin. Huh. He had lost a bunch of weight, and it's kind of yeah, yeah. I got to see it again because I remember De-, De Niro. He gained a lot of weight, right? Mm-hmm. Being an out of shape boxer. Yeah, it's a scene towards the towards the end. He shows up. He's got a little face hair going, and he's. I'm like, I got to check. Why? That's Pesci. I, I I almost couldn't recognize him. What? It was it's kind it's kind of creepy, Mike. They went all out for that film, dude. Those mm-hmm. actors, next level. Oh yeah. There's something about boxing movies where people were really willing to like really transform their bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, most times to get in shape, but um, guys like Christian Bale, man, next level, man, like the Machinist. He's crazy. Yeah, he's actually crazy. Uh, when he went from the Machinist <laughs> then to Batman, so to go from being that thin and gaunt to like bulking up, he he actually gotten too big in there, and they had, he had to slim down some. He had overly. <laughs> bulked up for for <laughs> Nolan's Batman for Batman Begins I'm like wow but th- the technology is being used to like get rid of wrinkles and things like that but they don't disclose it to people mm-hmm. and so they're already using it to make people look younger anyway but no to, surprise yeah but to do it like your whole face you know 20 years ago or 30 years ago something like that it's, it's a different look I know David Fincher he's pretty good at, at doing that stuff he did it with Benjamin Button uh, but you can you can tell a little bit your brain picks it up it's, you could tell a little bit, but 
Sure, sure. And sometimes, you know, I mean, again, it's film, so there's always the the suspension of of belief um, Mm -hmm. or suspension of disbelief um, where you'll, you know, buy in and and go for the ride. But, yeah, I mean, even like in the first Captain America where, you know, you got the skinny Steve Rogers um, before he becomes Cap. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, and you know that was again, done well. That was done well. Yeah, I think if you go back and look at it now, I think it's gonna not look quite as well as it as it as it did. You kind of see see some of the I don't know chinks in the armor or whatever. But the Apes movies, man, the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, that like they've I'm, got it down. Oh man, they've got it down. Yeah, it, it, the I mean they're. The hairs. They got to do all the individual hairs and the expressions. It's expensive, man. It is. That is. That's next level. Because you see that and they're matching up the shadows and everything. And that does. That looks. That looks flawless. And that. And that. But you can see through the movies. If you see like the first one and all that. Like you can see the. Like the technology get better. Yes. The first one is like. uh, Is this a cartoon? Mm. (laughs) But now you just like. You can't tell. It's now they they've got it down. The third, oh man, you seen the third one? Mm-mm. War of the Planet. Oh, it, it's good. Uh, and and this, oh, this little ape called Bad Ape is hilarious. But the journey of uh, of Caesar is uh, that's uh, it's, it's super fascinating. But yeah, the mm-hmm. the visual effects in that one, it's yeah, you 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 cannot tell. You watch it, you're like, oh wow, look at these trained, you know. Uh, these trained apes acting. Mm-hmm. That's literally what it looks like. But that, but it's also right. it's also you got I gotta give mad kudos to Andy Circus. I mean his the performance that he puts in Because they're you know, matching that performance like it's frame by frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only the next thing is just everything has to be immersive. Like that's gonna be the next level of entertainment. It just I wanna be in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> it'll be ready player one slash the matrix. Yeah. You know, that uh Singularity. Have you done anything with VR? Have you like tried any of the VR headsets and no, like that? Not yet. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't done anything yet. I want. I want to sample it. Kind of. I want to try like a scary, like a scary movie kind of mm. situation. But I, I don't. I do and I don't. Mm. <laughs> Just mm. because I've been in like an arcade where you you sit down and the thing you close the curtain and you're doing the thing and the the seats shaking and you're shooting and then the the speakers all around you. That's scary within itself, but if you're like in an actual environment, you, you can see the actual environment, you feel like you're in it and it feels real. Like, I want to experience, but I really don't. Yeah, because I want to fit. So I know that would get me every time the scary movies in, in that regard. Yeah, I played a sample of a game a couple years back on my PS4, and uh, <laughs> man, it was first person. It wasn't even, it wasn't VR, which is the first person kind of walk around and that. Mm. Like, that's enough. Now you want to be in it? You want to yeah. be like you're really there? Well, again, I'll, I'll never forget seeing this one guy again on uh, IGN. They were filming a couple of their people trying out VR, and they were playing this mm-hmm. one game. And he had he had to he was using the the joysticks, the, the the special joysticks, and he had to pick up a flashlight and put batteries in it. Picked up the flashlight, had the batteries in his hand, you know, all virtually, and dropped the batteries. And so. He goes to kneel down to pick up the batteries, and there's a table next to him. He tries to lean on the table, the digital <laughs> table, the virtual table, wow. and almost falls. Like, oh, it's not really there. I, I, I forgot. He would just he got that immersed in that moment. I was like, whoa. If you die in a matrix, does your brain know the difference? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, it's a 
It's a new age. It's going to be fascinating to see what they do with film. And they're, they're obviously they're already experimenting with that now, but they still have to get past you know the you know the motion sickness that some people get. I know in some games they kind of will just maybe like teleport you instead of having you walk to places. They may just mm-hmm. like teleport you to the next spot to do what you need to do. So mm-hmm. kind of help cut down on that. But like with some some of the VR racing games, I've heard people you know some people get the motion sickness. Next episode we're going to revisit uh, Red State, and then after that Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Ooh. Yeah, some good behind the scenes stuff for that too. Already, so appreciate it, brother Casey G. Smith. My pleasure, my pleasure. Until next time, thank y'all for tuning in to Filmmaker Commentary. Catch you next time. Mm-hmm.